You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm recording this pretty early on Thursday morning since I'm about three hours away from hopping on a plane for a quick trip to the homeland. And overall, it's just been another week of Christmas parties, work chaos and the like. I also saw Christopher Nolan give a talk, which melted my brain. That was very cool. Since this is the last episode of the year, this is the one time of year that I ask at the top of the show to please make sure, or not make sure, but if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, I'd be very appreciative. I've also got the support page and the buy me the coffee if you're feeling generous this holiday season. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Wish. I am so far behind on movies, you guys. Happens every year, even if I'm freelancing. I spent the Thanksgiving holiday catching up on all of the Disney animated films I'd never seen. There was about five of them, and most of them were all from like 2001 to about 2010. So it was like a teenager and too cool for animation, or I thought so. Uh, That and Strange World, but nobody saw Strange World, but you should. Strange World was actually really good. So Wish is the most recent Disney animated film. It's the like 100th anniversary special Disney movie. And it was fine. The songs were a little weird, but the animation style was really gorgeous. It was like watercolor and computer animation. I really liked that. It took a little bit of getting used to, but once you did, it was great. I think the story was a weird choice for the studio to make it like the big 100 movie. I think that's why there was so much pressure being put on it and why people have been so critical of it, because there are far, far worse Disney films in their uh, catalog that are far, far worse. I, I know I, I get, I'm an expert on the subject now that I've seen them all, but I think the hate it's getting is because it's the 100th anniversary film. It's fine. It is perfectly fine. It's regular Disney animation type fair. It's nothing special. It's not bad. You won't. I don't think you'd have a bad time watching it. I didn't. I thought it was fine. It's 90 minutes. 90 minutes is a doable length of time for this movie. And now on to this week's topic. This week, the last episode of the year, as I've said a few times, and we're going to take a quick look back on the highlights of 2023 in film. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. So before everything went off the rails again, the year, as always, kicked off in Filmland with award season for the previous year's films. 
Jimmy Kimmel returned to hosting the Oscars after the whole thing that happened the year before. And Everything Everywhere All at Once took home Best Picture. Michelle Yeoh, the star of the film, became the first woman of Asian descent to win a Best Actress Oscar. It was also a night of huge comebacks as both Brendan Fraser and Ki Hui Kwan came out of relative obscurity and won Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor respectively. And most importantly, nobody got slapped. Most of the year, of course, as far as entertainment news, was the dual WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. As of today, December 7th, as I'm recording this, the strikes are over as the actors voted to ratify their new agreement on Monday evening. So the strikes for now are over, but there's a Teamsters negotiation next year, which is more than likely going to be a cage fight based on what happened this year. As it should be, but that's a future Caitlin issue to have to contend with. So I'm going to keep things easy. I'm going to break down the major events of the WGA strike, and then I'll go into the SAG-AFTRA strike. You could pretty much feel it in the air last winter that at the very least, the writers were going to go on strike in 2023. For months leading up to the eventual strike, studios were buying and banking scripts to ensure that there would be content to shoot while the studios and Guild busted everything out. If this isn't your first episode here, you know that's not what happened. On April 18th of this year, 97.85% of members of the Writers Guild of America preemptively voted yes to going on strike in the event that negotiations with the AMPTP failed to yield a satisfactory agreement. If you don't know, the AMPTP stands for the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The AMPTP is a trade association that represents the major Hollywood studios, networks, and streamers in these types of of negotiations. Apparently, the insider joke is, I've never heard it, but I saw it in two articles, so maybe it is a thing. It's a Hollywood alliance that was formed to say no. Normally, all these studios are competitors, but when it comes to the guild negotiations, then they're allies. Every three years, a contract known as a minimum base agreement, or MBA, is negotiated on between the guild and the members of the AMPTP. The minimum base agreement is the bare minimum a union member can be compensated on a union production. So it basically just gives every studio a common language with which to negotiate. When talks fell through on May 1st, it was announced soon after that the next day would mark the beginning of the 2023 writer's strike. The writers went on strike over several things, better streaming residuals, for example, as television residuals and home video revenue had decreased with the height of streaming, leading to a decrease in their residuals, meaning their income was severely affected. They also wanted AI protections due to the rise of the AI softwares. They wanted increased wages and a smattering of other things. Streaming and AI, however, were like the big sticking points. There was also a desire to see an increase in pay for screenwriters, as well as guaranteed additional pay if rewrites were required. On the TV side of things, the size of writers' rooms were a big issue as well, as studios had started implementing something called mini-rooms, not all the studios, but several of them, which meant less writers at the same pay as a regular room, but with way more work. When the strike was called, the WGA stated that the AMPTP quote-unquote rejected their proposals. This proposal included the weekly pay feature for film writers instead of just the one flat fee, the writer's room minimums, the AI protections, and viewership-based streaming residuals. The WGA claimed that the AMPTP countered, but the deal was unsatisfactory. In response, the AMPTP released a counterstatement explaining why they wouldn't match what the writers asked for. 
They argued that a writing room quota would inhibit the creative process, the people who aren't creative, and that the wage increase was too high. When it came to AI, the studios didn't want any guarantees in writing other than to have, quote, conversations down the line. After a months-long standoff with bunches of drama, trees getting allegedly cut for malicious purposes, and all the other stuff that happened, the AMPTP finally called the WG back to the negotiation table in August. The whole summer, the writers were out on the street picketing. This was after the news that an anonymous studio head had told a reporter for one of the trades that all the studios were waiting for everyone to start becoming homeless and, you know, losing their things they worked their whole lives for before they went back to the table. Not a great look. Everyone's got a theory who it is. It's one of three people. And if you and if you know the studio heads enough, you know who the three people are. But yeah, they suddenly like within a few days, weeks of that particular article coming back, they were back at the negotiation table guessing the other ones wanted to save face and look better in comparison, even if uh, they thought the same thing. It's different. It's one thing to think it. It's another thing to say it. And it's a horrific thing to try and do to another person who makes the things that make you money. After weeks of negotiation, a deal was struck between the writers and the AMPTP on September 24th, and the strike officially ended on September 27th. The deal was ratified on October 9th. In the deal, the writers got an increase into their pension fund. TV shows also got a minimum staffing requirement. Three writers for a six-episode series, five writers for seven to 12, and six writers for shows with 13 or more episodes, except in cases where all of the episodes in a series are written by a single writer. This is a more rare thing. Euphoria and White Lotus are like the big examples currently on TV. Also, these gigs will be a minimum 10 weeks if a show is in development and 20 if it's greenlit for a full season. This guarantee provides a writer with a more steady employment structure so they don't have to guess how long they're going to have a job for because TV writers are paid weekly for the most part. While the streamers managed to keep their actual viewing numbers secret for now, the total number of hours streamed both domestically and internationally of the high budget streaming shows will be shared with the Writers Guild, to, not to all members, but to like a group of people designated within the guild to be in charge of figuring out how to dole out the residuals for streaming. The guild has to keep this info confidential, meaning the public at large will not have access to this data. It's not what they wanted. It's not what I think this industry needs, but it's better than nothing. The studios and streamers will also pay a bonus for any made-for-streaming show or movie that is viewed by at least 20% of a streaming service's domestic subscriber base, meaning the U.S., in the first 90 days of release. That means anything licensed, meaning the streamer did not make the show and rather paid another studio for the rights to air it on the network, like Suits, for example. Suits was a big thing that everyone got upset about during the strike. That will be ineligible for this bonus. It was not made by Netflix. Therefore, it is not a streaming show. The creatives eligible for residuals will get a cut of the licensing fee that is laid out in their contracts for those situations. But that's always been the case. With AI, it was agreed that the software can't be used to write or rewrite a script. And AI-generated material will not be considered source material, meaning a studio can't go into like chat GPT and ask it for movie ideas, then give that list to writers to write. A writer can use AI with company approval, but a studio cannot make a writer use AI software. 
The studios retained the ability to continue to train AI using film and television scripts that already exist, but gave writers the right to challenge that use in the future. And they will because that's kind of I was I was surprised that slipped through, honestly. Screenwriters also got an increased minimum selling price and a guaranteed payday when they're brought in for rewrites, as well as a weekly pay if they're asked to be on set. So that went from being more of a salary once off thing to guaranteed pay structure throughout the filmmaking process. With the writer's strike already in full force, the Actors Guild, with 98% in favor, authorized a strike on June 5th should their negotiations fail. Negotiations between the SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP were set to expire on June 30th with the prior SAG-AFTRA contract. By this point, the writers had been on strike for just over a month, and about a month before this, the DGA, the Directors Guild of America, had reached a deal with the studios. This news that the the directors had met a deal was met with a lot of divisiveness because there were some, not a lot, but some very loud people that wanted to see all three unions on strike at the same time. I think it was just to, I don't know, for chaos, solidarity, I don't know. The DGA has historically only ever been on strike one time, and it was for less than a day. So this would have been actually a pretty big deal. The DGA went on strike. The DGA doesn't really have to worry about AI, though. So there wasn't really their AI. I think there there is some AI stuff in their contract, but like... It's it's pretty it's pretty minor and it wasn't exactly hard. Like a director's got to be on set. The the director jobs are are safe from AI for for a bit here, so they didn't have to worry about that too much. At midnight on July first, it was announced that the strike deadline for SAG-AFTRA was extended to July twelfth, as the union and the AMPTP believed that just a little bit more time would be enough to iron out a deal. An arbitrator was called in the eleventh hour as a hail mary on I believe it was July eleventh. Of course, they didn't reach a deal, and on July 13th, the strike was called, and the actors joined the writers on the picket lines. The actors went on strike over similar things, including a disagreement in the pay structure or pay raise structure, AI concerns, and increased streaming residuals. The other thing they wanted was to create rules involving self-tape auditions, which became a standard during the pandemic for obvious reasons. This led to many actors paying to have their auditions taped by other people with no guarantee of it getting them a job. So it was costing them money. Why weren't they filming with their phone? I don't know. It's not my business, but enough of them were doing it where people were upset. Talks did not resume until October 2nd. So after the WGA deal was done, so they were only doing this one at a time once everyone went on strike, which was also a tactic on the AMPTP's part because they could have 100% been doing both at the same time. But the AMPTP walked away from SAG-AFTRA nine days later when the union introduced a streaming profit sharing proposal that pissed all the everybody off. Everybody on the AMPTP side, apparently they just like stood up and left like... It had been kind of unofficially expected that a deal was going to be reached that week, so much so that crew members had been sent out to set by studios to locations to prep things like for the films that had been shut down with just like a few days left of shooting. But of course, when the news got out that the studio heads walked away, everyone was quickly called back as it was clear this was going to take a little bit more time. After a month of further negotiating, SAG was sent their last best and final offer from the AMPTP, which they did um, have notes on. So that ended up being not the last best final. It was last best final light. Negotiations continued on the 6th 
but a deal was eventually struck on November 8th. Several actors came out against the deal, stating that the AI protections were not adequate. But despite this and other concerns, the deal was ratified on December 5th, with 78% of voters saying yes to it. Only 38% of the guild's voting body actually cast a ballot, though in comparison, only 40% of the members voted to approve the strike. So what did they get? Well, the actors got an overall 11% raise over the next three years. They also got a success-based streaming bonus, similar to what the writers got. The notable difference is that the actors on the shows that get the streaming bonus will only get 75% of that bonus, and the remainder will be paid into a fund that will be allocated to actors on less popular streaming projects. This is part of the union's goal to ensure that lower paper performers get some compensation as well. In the papers and on the podcast, you you see and you hear the conversations about who won and who lost the strikes. And it's mainly, you know, did the AMPTP win this or did the guilds? While there's definitely some PR nightmares to contend with on the studio side, a lot of people said a lot of nasty shit, but it's not exactly easy to boycott studios as they finance the things the artists who fought for a deal with make. In my opinion, you're not going to be able to get a sense of what these deals did for lower ranking guild members until you see any of it in action. It's one thing to make a deal for a hypothetical job. It's another matter entirely to get a job, especially a creative job in this industry. Because of all of the striking and just the state of the film industry, the entertainment industry as as a whole, studios will be decreasing projects due to this loss of income. So that's going to mean less jobs. So that's going to mean it's going to be harder to get a job. I wouldn't call them losers, but there are definitely people who lost in this. And that's definitely crew members who were out of work for seven months. VFX houses who got no work in that time, who are struggling from project to project because of the nature of VFX and how they're underpaid. A ton of those houses are going to close down forever. Um, There's other industries like caterers and restaurants and other industries in cities that rely on the film industry, people getting paychecks. They saw a reduction in spending because of that. Also keep in mind, and this is in no way to vilify them because shit did need to get fixed, actors and writers were still receiving residuals checks, so they were still having some kind of income. Crew members didn't get those. It was a reduction in the normal rates for the actors and writers, of course, like you always want that actual paycheck, but something is always better than nothing. Additionally, the strikes are estimated to have lost the state of California billions of dollars, so the full effect of this isn't going to be seen for a couple of years, but it's it's going to be pretty gnarly. The strikes brought up a bunch of issues that have been growing in entertainment for years, and the big one, of course, is the streamers and the viewership numbers and why they won't release them. Well, they won't release them because Netflix won't release them, so if Netflix won't release them, then nobody else is going to release them because Netflix is the one that forced everyone to get into streaming. Up until streaming services began to seriously encroach on cable, the success of a show was measured by the amount of viewership a show was getting. That's what Nielsen ratings are. Since streamers don't release that data publicly, and actually very few people within the company actually know what the true numbers are, we're all kind of just sitting around here, just kind of blindfolded, throwing darts at a board, trying to figure out like what people are watching, what is getting the things, but no one really knows. Having worked for an independent production company who made shows for a streamer back in the day, I can't even begin to tell you how frustrating it is to be told, quote, the network is happy with the numbers, but you have no clue what those numbers are. 
You have no way of knowing what your fate is until the network comes from on high to grace you with a second season or not. You have no way of gauging that until that happens. Ted Sarandos, the CEO of Netflix, I think that's his name. Uh, he said that knowing the numbers is bad for creativity. Like it's, oh, it's too much stress. I was like, and I just balked at that because no, you want to know what's successful. You want to know what people are watching. You want to try and hone your creativity to that. This wild west of content isn't working. That's why we're in the state we are. No one knows what's trending. No, like you want to aim things at what people want to see. And if people don't know what people are watching, then how do we know what to buy or what to make or what to do? Like you don't want to just blindly make everything that doesn't make sense. We're also seeing some streamers talk about like bundling their services together. Paramount and Apple are apparently considering like a bundle deal where for X amount of money, slightly cheaper than the two, you can get both. Hulu is probably merging into Disney Plus because Disney bought out NBC Universal's stake in that for like $8 billion. So basically, we're kind of just ending up with the streaming. We're, we're getting cable 2.0. That was what streaming was supposed to eliminate was the inconveniences of cable. The streaming wars after this strike, I think, are going to hit their apex. I think next year is going to be very telling for how all of this shakes out. As membership fees are going to increase due to inflation and the strikes, and people aren't going to pay for all this shit, which is going to shake things up. The number for the streamers are all over the damn place, and the content is shuffling around like crazy, which is frustrating. And several streamers are opting to take off their what back in the day would be considered like B-level films and TV shows to license it to other streamers to make quick cash. It's a mess, you guys. No one knows how to pay anything. No one knows how many people are actually watching these things. Hours mean nothing. It could be one person watching it 18 times. That's not the same as 18 people watching it. St streaming's a mess. It's, it's, without, without concrete numbers, it's a mess. On a less serious note, one of the most memorable film moments of the year included two unlikely films, Barbie and Oppenheimer. For months leading up to the film's July 21st release, the internet began creating content about the dichotomy of these two films releasing on the same day. There was like this pink happy movie about a doll against this dark biopic about the father of the atomic bomb. Like they could not be more different. Like the big joke was, oh, it's like McDonald's. You get the girl toy, you get the boy toy. Out of all of this came the Barbenheimer trend, which came from the Internet. And that was just something no marketing department could have ever dreamt up. It was phenomenal. I work for one of the studios of one of these films. And to say this was a surprise would be an understatement, as I worked for the studio that made the not pink one. <laughs> that weekend, social media was flooded with pictures and reels and photos of people dressed in theme and Barbenheimer theme. As they went to the theaters, they packed these theaters, showing that it's possible for audiences to like more than one kind of movie. Up to that point, the summer box office had been pretty lackluster, and many outlets believed there wouldn't be a billion-dollar movie at the summer box office for the first time, not counting the pandemic, in about a decade. Luckily, Barbie showed that there is money in movies made for female audience-goers, not Mattel products like what Warner announced instead, and Barbie became the biggest film for any female director. Barbie has made over $1.4 billion at the international box office and is Warner's highest-grossing film ever. Oppenheimer may not have made as much, but it made far more than anyone thought it would. It's sitting at about $950 million right now. It'll definitely be back in theaters for award season. It's also set its own records. It's the highest grossing film never to reach number one at the box office, and it's the highest grossing biopic of all time. 
I think seconds Bohemian Rhapsody, but don't quote me on that. The July 21st weekend was also the fourth highest weekend at the cinemas ever, and it was the only one not to feature a film that was part of a franchise and also not Disney. The biggest weekend ever, if you're curious, was the Avengers Endgame release weekend, followed by Spider-Man No Way Home's weekend, then Star Wars The Force Awakens, then Barbenheimer. Speaking of the box office, there's a few things coming out at the end of the year, but nothing likely to shake up the top five at the box office this year. I have trouble believing Wonka is going to do anything crazy based on the groans every time I hear in a theater. And that trailer plays, though it is getting good reviews, so who knows? The Paddington director, apparently. Very good. I've only seen the first Paddington movie, but it was lovely. No, I've seen them both. Never mind. Aquaman might be an outlier, but superhero fatigue is pretty set in at this point, so we'll see. People do like that Jason Momoa, though. I like that Jason Momoa, though. What am I saying? Some shakeups this year to the formula, though. Taylor Swift and Beyonce's concert films, they were a big uh, wrench in the machine as they shook up the distribution model that's essentially been in place since the 1940s. The studios distribute the films. Because of the strikes and other things, they skipped right over the studio and just went straight to the theaters to distribute their concert films. Swift's became the highest grossing opening weekend for any concert film with over $125 million. This, of course, did and still is yielding some hefty profits for both of these artists, which the studios are getting no profit of, which they don't like. And it remains to be seen what this will mean for the future of distribution going forward. Do we need studios to distribute? That's going to piss a lot of people off because that's a big part of their market. Great for theaters, though. And there's definitely going to be an influx of concert films in the next couple of years. In fact, there's a Queen IMAX special coming out for like a weekend in January that I can almost guarantee is riding the coattails of these two films. And I'm 100% going, so I'm in. Let's do it. But with that in mind, the top highest grossing films of the year as of December 7th when I recorded this was Barbie. Barbie was first, then Super Mario Brothers, then Oppenheimer, then Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and somehow Fast X. The only one that might get knocked out is maybe Fast X by Aquaman, but they got to do it in like eight days, so we'll see. It's possible. Superhero franchise fatigue continued to increase at the box office as the Marvel films continued to decline in revenue, and God only knows what's going on with DC. DC had a rough year. Disney is still recovering from the very blah decisions the previous CEO made, and it looks like they're scrambling a little bit. For example, they're giving theatrical releases to older Pixar films, the three that released in, on Disney Plus during the pandemic next year. They're giving them theatrical releases. I'm guessing it's because they had to push some of their content because of the strikes and they want to like get at least a little bit of revenue. For the rest of the year, I mean, most of it was overshadowed by the strikes and several films were pushed when it became clear that the talent promotion was needed to lure people in. The biggest one to suffer this fate was like Dune Part 2. And yeah, a couple of the Disney and or Pixar animation films got pushed. I'm guessing they still had uh, voice stuff to do and then they got to do the mouths and that takes time. And that's probably what happened there. Animation as a whole is in a tough spot as the price point of these films is incredibly high and therefore the most part not bringing in theater money. People have gotten used to, and it's in Disney's fault, for these animations to eventually end up on streaming relatively quickly or just to be released there outright. And that's kind of confused audiences and they're not coming into theaters for these, which is inconvenient because you need the family going to the movies money for these to, to break even financially. Wish and Elemental, which were Disney and Pixar respectively, opened way below what they wanted. That's Disney's bread and butter, or at least it used to be. Not what they wanted to see, I'm sure. 
There's also issues with the international market, namely China, as the studios towards the end of this year, especially we're not seeing the franchise tentpole money come in anymore. Those films and studios previously relied on that market to make a decent chunk of their money back, which allowed the film budgets to get larger. So that's a consideration studios will have to make moving forward when they're, you know, making certain like big budget films. Overall, the box office continued to recover from the effects of the pandemic, but is still not quite where you want it to be. But the year is expected to finish about 18 percent higher than last year. So that's not nothing either. So please go to the movies. Other news stories that were big-ish this year, the Disney Animation Studio staff voted to unionize, so did the Marvel VFX workers. Warner Brothers, David Zaslav, views movies as assets instead of art, apparently, leading him to be in hot water more than once with creatives this year. I don't trust anyone who has the vendetta this man seems to have against the Looney Tunes. He tried to shelve a film featuring Wile E. Coyote and quote-unquote accidentally tried to remove the older cartoons from Max, their streaming service. What else? Oh, oh, the head of NBC Universal, Jeff Shell, got fired for having an affair with an employee. That news woke me up from a nap. That was fun. Um, yeah, that's the big stuff. So as we get to the end of the episode, let's take a look at what you should probably get on your radar for award season if that's your jam. The next seven-ish films are ones I think might get a Best Picture nomination based on what I've seen and read. I also kind of guess what they might also be nominated for. So let's get into that. Oppenheimer, gonna be all over the damn place. We'll start easy. That'll be going for everything. All the awards. Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, Robert Downey Jr., probably all getting nominations. Only one who might not, maybe Florence Pugh. Director nomination, screenplay nomination. Damn near a sure thing. Christopher Nolan's probably. I think this is gonna be his year. And and I'm not just because I'm biased. Um, Barbie will be up there, too. But just because of the nature of the film and how staunch voters can be, Academy voters especially, this might be a dark horse. It shouldn't be, but it might be. I'm guessing there will be Oscar nominations for Ryan Gosling, production design, costume design and screenplay for Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Maybe directing for Gerwig, but historically the director category isn't always nice to women. Killers of the Flower Moon, definitely going to be around. It's the year of the three-hour movies. Banking on a Best Actress nomination for Lily Gladstone. She killed that role so hard. Maybe Leonardo DiCaprio will get a Best Actor nomination, but it was just so much like so many of his other roles that maybe it'll be like, not again, Leo. Fool me 15 times. It's not that he was bad in it. It's just he was the same in it. Possible supporting nomination for Robert De Niro to the Academy loves Martin Scorsese. So they'll probably he'll probably get a director nomination, whether deserved or not. A film I haven't seen yet, but that's getting buzzy buzz is American Fiction. I saw the trailer before something a couple of months ago, and it does look really good. The logline is a novelist who's fed up with the establishment profiting from quote unquote black entertainment, uses a pen name to write a book that propels him into the heart of hypocrisy and the madness he claims to disdain. Predictions for this one are best director for Cord Jefferson, who also adapted the screenplay. Go look up the trailer. It's really funny in a really messed up way, but it's very funny. Another film, this one was a surprise for me, but it's getting Oscar buzz like crazy, is The Holdovers, which is the Paul Giamatti film where he plays the curmudgeonly teacher who bonds with his troubled student over the Christmas holidays. I saw it. I liked it. I was just surprised that people liked it this much. This film, likely not going to win a ton, but predictions are for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, and Actor nomination for Giamatti. 
Yorgos Lanthimos, I think that's how you say his name, continues his run as an Academy darling with his next sure-to-be-batshit bananas film, Poor Things. From the look of it, it's his take on Frankenstein, but the monster is an unhinged, horny Emma Stone. I honestly can't wait to see this. Stone, who was also a producer on the film, will also likely get an actress nomination. Mark Ruffalo is expected to get a supporting one. I don't really care to see it, but I've been hearing good things about Maestro or Maestro. Maestro. It's probably Maestro. The Leonard Bernstein biopic. That's expected to be a triumphant follow up for Bradley Cooper in the director's chair. Controversy about the prosthetic nose aside. He's expected to get a nomination for Best Actor for directing himself. Also director for directing himself. And Carrie Mulligan is also expected to get a Best Actress nomination. Final one that I think is a shoe in for Best Picture is Past Lives, which might be the best film of the year, honestly. It was a work of art. If you don't remember, it came out in the spring, I think. And the film is about two friends from South Korea who are separated the day they realize they have mutual crushes on each other and reunite as friends at different points in their lives. It was an instant classic. I think about it at least once a week. It should be nominated for everything, but experts are saying director and screenplay nominations in addition to, of course, Best Picture. Honorable mentions, I'd say Origins, which is based on the novel Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, which is directed by Ava DuVernay. There's May December directed by Tom Browning, which I've heard polarizing things about, but it's on a bunch of these like year end lists for a foreign film, Anatomy of a Fall, which I'm looking forward to, Boy and the Heron and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for animated feature. I'm guessing Wish will end up on there because all the Disney movies always end up on there. Maybe some design Oscars for The Color Purple. Napoleon seems pretty DOA. I know they were making a best picture run for that. Uh, Apple was, but the reviews did not do it any favors. It'll probably get some design nominations because it's a period piece. Air might sneak in there in a few places. The the Air Jordans movie. But yeah, that's what you should keep on your radar for the next few months leading into award season. And now for my personal stuff-ish and scheduling. So this December is a five-Sunday month, and I've opted to just go ahead and take these last three uh, weeks off of the year as just some time to get some rest and gently work on next year's content. I'm very burnt out, (laughs) if I'm being honest. Um, This has been a crazy year with career stuff, other people's weddings and other people's babies. And I think rather than wear myself out more than I already am, I'm just going to take the time off and come back next year fully rejuvenated. I may do a special episode of like movie theater movie reviews if I can get my ass into a theater, but we'll see. No promises. Those are easy. It's just me doing regular what most podcasters do, just yelling into a microphone my opinions. (laughs) But yeah, no promises. I probably just need to sleep. As always, I'm very grateful for all of you that have listened as we're about to start the fifth year of this podcast. Have a great holiday and new year, and I will see you in the next one. But first, the outro. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. 
I've got a letterboxed account which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I'm leaving for the airport in about an hour. So uh, just home coffee for me this week. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. This is the final episode of the year. Thank you again, even though I said thank you like two minutes ago. But thank you for listening and sticking out with me through 2023. And I will see you in 2024. But for now, that's a wrap.